Thank you and uh, welcome back uh, to Race Industry Week 2023 and uh, brought to you by EPAR Trade, Racer and Speedsport. As uh, we mentioned uh, several times today, we are live not only on Zoom, but also on racer.com, on speedsport.com, on speedsport1, as well as uh, uh, on our YouTube channels, EPAR Trade YouTube channels, Racer YouTube channel and Speedsport YouTube channel. So thank you very much for being with us. This is our last session of the day. Uh, with uh, Formula Drift. I'm being told that Ryan is with us, a great series, Formula Drift. Uh, you know, we, we talked with Stefan Papadakis earlier, who was a pioneer uh, in his uh, in his field and, you know, one of the earlier uh, uh, guys competing with Formula Drift. Ryan, you there? I see Ryan Sage with us. Good afternoon, Ryan. There we go. I just unmuted. Good afternoon. How are you? <laughs> Good. Thank good. you, George Tamayo. Yeah. Very welcome. Let you carry on. Well, thank you. We'll uh, we'll get started. Ryan, let me introduce you. You are the president of Formula Drift, and um, we are just wrapping up uh, a little while ago your twentieth season. And I think uh, we could probably spend a whole show just talking about the last round and how uh, chaotic that was at uh, the House of Drift in Irwindale. But overall, how did how did the season go for you? What was your uh, what is your feedback on that? You know, it was quite an undertaking. Uh, we had a lot of things planned, some below the surface, some above. Um, you know, so that reference there is just the internal workings of things that we had planned for the 20th season. Some were more for the public and some were for us in terms of like developing and growing the business. Uh, so it was a pretty heavy undertaking. Um, but there was kind of a really cool sense of where the series has come to as we celebrated, you know, 20 years. And I, I think for those fans in particular, but also drivers that have been around for a good chunk of that time frame, uh, looking back to where, where it came from, its humble beginnings was, uh, was really cool to see. And, you know, we got to the point in the championship this year from a competition standpoint that, something new happened in season 20. And so, mm. yeah, I think overall it was, uh, it was really awesome. It's also a way for us to kind of shut the books on, you know, our first 20 years and start looking forward to, to the next 20 years. Yeah. You mentioned that something different happened in the competition. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? What, what do you think, what, what do you think happened over the, over this year? Because there were a lot of new winners, um, you know, some of the names that we've been familiar with over the past few years kind of faltered a little bit there in the end. So what 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 happened this year, do you think? Yeah, you're you're kind of you're kind of pointing right to it. I mean, basically, if you look at the championship historically, you've got a number of drivers that, um, you know, have multiple championships, you know, whether it's Chris Forsberg with three or Von Gittin Jr. with two or James Dean with three or Frederick Osbo with three. Uh, Sam Hubinet with two, and then you've got a bunch of single season winners. Most of those athletes, rather all of those athletes, um, had been around in the series for a long a period of time. The one exception would be Daigo Saito um, in uh, 2012. But, you know, he was a very tenured, uh, you know, drifting personality that came over to the U.S. For, uh, to compete and try to win that championship. 
Chelsea Denofa is a driver from a different era, from an era that has, um, I guess, its roots in things that are a little bit different than some of the other other drivers. He was the newest face on the block. Yeah. He was the star to be, and it never really captured that championship. Not because he wasn't, you know, a strong performer, but I think because, you know, he liked to drive a certain kind of way. And sometimes that driving would, you know, bite him in the butt, so to speak. Multiple times, I think, as his career developed, in particular when he went to RTR, um, it was almost a foregone conclusion that he would win multiple championships. But this was the first year that he captured it. As you mentioned, very uh, drama filled. It, it came down to the wire, of course. Um, but, you know, he had four event wins this year, so he was clearly the most dominant driver. Yeah, yeah. When we take a step back and look at the bigger business and, again, celebrating your 20th season and, and that milestone, as you look back, what what do you think are the things that Formula Drift has done right over the years to get to the place where it is? And maybe where do you think that there's still room for growth and improvement? It's a great question. I think a lot of the early iterations of the business came out of necessity. Um, you know, drifting was certainly not very well respected by the traditional um, motorsports community um, in the sense that I think, you know, racing, you know, has a very simple premise, you know, get from point A to point B and whoever gets there faster uh, wins. I mean, that's a simplistic way to look at it, but that's basically about it. And, you know, oh. drifting is a subjective sport. And I think there's an element of that that is antithetical to certain, you know, um, certain people within the motorsports community. But the thing that it does have and that it's always had is it has this youthful audience, you know, about 90% of our audience is between 18 and 30. So, as we've kind of developed the sport, we were leaning more into the areas where we could really um, drive the sport in a direction that would allow it to grow, not trying to be a recreation of other motorsports that were out there by doing all the traditional steps, because many yeah. of those steps were not necessarily available to us. Um, it's only been within probably within the past 10 years that, you know, we could call up any venue and probably get you know some participation at that venue but we never you know to put some meat on the bones we never took the approach couldn't take the approach where as an organizer we would work with a promoter or we would you know find somebody to sanction the series uh, we kind of had to self-sanction at certain points in our history and we also had to act as the promoter so we were basically going in you know renting venues acting as the promoter, acting as the the uh, broadcast producer, doing all of those things soup to nuts. And I think that gave us a lot of leverage as we got bigger and and continued to grow. But in the early years, that was incredibly challenging because many of the things that were available to a lot of motorsports weren't available to us. And so we had to, you know, figure out our, our way around and, you know, our choice to kind of lean into the things that we could can control um, and that we were good at uh, turned out to be, you know, a, po a net po positive for us at the end of the day. Yeah. And and what about that area where there's still things that, you know, you you look at and you go, we can we can step up our game here or we can evolve it a little. Maybe it's not a question of stepping up the game. Maybe it's just a question of continuing to 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 push forward in that direction. Is there anything you can highlight in that regard? 
you know, I think the, um, the growth of the sport is very much tied. I mean, it's almost a one-to-one -one correlation with the, you know, the onset and popularity of social media. Mm. And that has been a major driver um, for us in many different ways. It's also been a major driver of the way that we say produce our live stream broadcast and that way that we look at distribution. And so because of that, you know, that presents a, a certain set of problems as well, you know, um, with every good, there's going to be, you know, a, a counterbalance to that. And so, you know, we've never really been in a position to be able to go and take our rights, our package and, you know, go and say, sell it to a network for a big fee and then have that be part of the way that we distribute funds within uh, the series. Uh, and I think that that is something that, you know, in the traditional sense, I think we would like to get to that. But one mm -hmm. of the things that we learned along the way by not doing that is that we're able to have shared rights with the drivers themselves. And so when you are an athlete in the series, you get to participate in the ability to film, distribute content from our events, utilize our content, utilize our drone footage, our GoPros and all that kind of stuff. And that has been the number one driver of the popularity of the sport is that essentially you have, you know, 40 influencers plus all their media personnel that are putting content into the marketplace so that people can digest it. And it's made the sport incredibly popular. So I think that's one of the things where there is a, a situation where had we gone down the road of a traditional broadcast distribution deal, we wouldn't maybe necessarily have the sport that we have today. Um, and at the same time, the sport that we have today is an outgrowth of why it became so popular on social media. And so, you know, the kind of the the T in the road that we're at right now is figuring out, do we continue to go down this road and control our destiny and, and you know, bring all the things that we think are important to the general audience through this mechanism? Or do we do something different? Like, is there a hybrid model that, that we can mm. look at? Um, that, you know, still allows teams to monetize in a traditional way, um, traditional to us, but that that allows the sport to be able to do different things. I mean, we do have a broadcast television partnership with MAV TV that we signed this past year, which is kind of, you know, putting our, our dipping our toe into that space a little bit. And that's been incredibly fruitful, but it's taken them looking at what we do, how the sport is cut up over an event weekend and actually making it an adjustment in perhaps the way that a traditional broadcast company would operate, not the way that a series would operate because, you know, we don't have, you know, fixed timelines with our competitions. Right. We've got generalities, you know, if we have a big oil down or a big crash, you know, that sometimes can be antithetical to a traditional, you know, live broadcast, but Mav jumped into this, you know, with both of their feet. And I think right now it's paying dividends for how things might uh, take off in the future. Yeah, it, it strikes me definitely as one of those, the grass could be greener on the other side sort of thing. But 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 again, there's also the careful what you wish for. And in that regard, and, and especially with the popularity of influencers, social media, this sort of ability to own your content and own your distribution, which in turn means to some extent that it's possible you own your audience. Is that is that more inviting to your commercial partners, I would think, because there there aren't a lot of additional hurdles that they have to jump through in order to activate their product. It's almost more of a one-to-one -one relationship. 
with the customer. No, I think that's right. Um, you know, being able to vertically package deals with sponsors um, has been an incredibly important part of uh, the exercise of building, you know, the drifting space um, and also the culture around drifting. You know, most of our sponsors are interested in that vertical integration. Yeah. Um, and it's also allowed them to, you know, essentially be able to deal with one entity as opposed to, to two or three. Um, and so there's an efficiency element that goes on there as well. I think one of the biggest challenges um, with doing that is that, you know, there's a, there can be times in the series, you know, COVID is a great example. 2008 is another great example where that model makes you extremely leveraged. And so you have to be able to figure out ways to reduce that leverage so you can, you know, you can keep it going on. One of the more important assets I think that we have that we've learned through those times in particular is that the audience is incredibly um, passionate about what we do. And so they have single-handedly been responsible for keeping us afloat during the housing crash, you know, watching our stuff when we were in the COVID years and nobody could come to these events. So yeah. those things have been really awesome. And they, they're compelling in terms of the storytelling as well. When we talk to sponsors and say, you know, this is a very unique audience. They don't do a lot of other things. There's a motorsports component here, but also a cultural one. And so from that standpoint, I think it's been a, a net positive. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about um, sort of acceptance within the broader motorsports community for, for Drift, but I feel like that barrier is has really broken down in the last few years. I feel like there is more acceptance of what drift brings and maybe even if i may be so bold to say some envy from some of the other legacy motorsports series in terms of the youthful audience that that kind of sort of condensed festival atmosphere uh, you know an event that is really uh sort of a packaged showcase for what um for what it's all about right do, do you feel the same do you feel like there's been a little bit of of, of more acceptance broadly broadly speaking within the motorsports community? I do. Yeah. I mean, I think there are individuals that just don't like drifting from, you know, say an aesthetic standpoint or the judging aspect of it. Um, because, you know, in traditional racing, you know, a lot of, you know, I think the way to win is predicated upon, you know, how you spend your money and, you know, where your funding mechanisms come from. And there's an element of that in drifting, of course, but, you know, I've got, countless stories of guys that are running a $75,000 program going up against a $2 million program and the $75,000 guy wins 50% of the time. So that doesn't make sense in, in a traditional, uh, you know, viewpoint, but I think you're right. Like I can remember, you know, you know, quotes like, you know, you guys will never make it out of the first year. And then we get to year five and we'll be like, well, you'll never make it past year five. And then once we got to year 10, you know, those voices kind of like faded into the background. And I think people start to understand how important it is, broadly speaking, that youth are involved in motorsports. I mean, it, it is one of the aching pains of many of the motorsports pre-drive to survive um, that there are not mm. a lot of young people coming into motorsports. And so when you, you come to our events in particular, um, and you see a bunch of young kids there and they're having the time of their life, that's a very compelling story if you're somebody that's interested in the development and growth of motorsports. Yeah, you actually sort of presaged one of my questions, which is 
what you, you talked a little bit about about budgets big big budget small budget as a as a broad statement you're gonna you're you put your hat on as a somebody who's trying to grow the series which is what you do every day and you say to a potential competitor what does formula drift offer that maybe some of the other series don't and 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 a part of that is that as you've touched on what does it take to be successful actually in formula drift yeah that is probably the, one of the most important questions um that a potential driver could ask themselves. And it's one of the things that we have to think, you know, quite a bit about, you know, tomorrow I'm not going to wake up and become a professional baseball player, no matter how, uh, how hard I willed that, um, you know, I'm not even going to probably become a professional mixed martial artist, even though the barrier to entry there is a little bit lower, but there's a kid right now working in a shop that in two years, if he really wanted to, could have a license to go to formula drift compete in pro spec and a year later be in the pro championship and there are literally countless examples of of that happening um and so you have this very very um i guess attainable barrier to entry within drifting and within formula drift in general and that's a really cool thing because you can be on a you know fairly large stage in a very short period of time dancing out your um, passions and the, the the things that you love in life and basically living your dreams. But it, it can cost to do these things as well. And the relative cost to do these is much, much less than most traditional motorsports from registration to developing and building a car. But you do need to, you know, put some investment into it, especially into where the revenue is going to be derived uh, from your program. And primary revenue derivation in drifting comes via sponsorship. And so the sponsorship constraints that we have for athletes are very, very low, meaning mm -hmm. minus, you know, products that you can't um, display for the general public or promote to under 18 or something like that. You can pretty much bring in anybody that you want and you can activate those sponsorships in a way that is a pretty different than a lot of other motorsport sponsorships in terms of on site and the way that, you know, we will also promote you as an athlete, because that's a promise that we make, you know, to those athletes as well. I think understanding that and the sandbox that you play in, and there are a number of athletes that have done it tremendously well and totally get it and know that even if you get to the event and you qualify and you get knocked out in the top 32, that's not the end of the story for you. The driving is actually the bonus, the work, the things that you need to do to get revenue for your program is everything else around that. You as an influencer, you as a brand representative, all yep. the things that you're doing pre-event, all the things that you're doing in your paddock, how are you driving attention, what you're doing for social media. So I think that can be a very stark task for a young driver to understand, but those that come uh, well-prepared, uh, you know, can have a long tenure as an athlete in, in formula drift. Well, and beyond, I think about uh, Tanner Faust, I think about Vaughn Gittin Jr., you know, who have, who have uh, just to name two actually, but who have sort of built these careers far beyond their, their start really in formula drift. I mean, to me, Vaughn is like the modern day Carol Shelby. I wasn't the one that that came up with that. Somebody else did. But when I think about it, um, I agree with it. 
And Vaughn in particular is a driver that has probably spent hundreds of hours talking to myself and to the series about how to better understand what it is that we do so that he can create the best possible leverage for his programs and incentives for his sponsors. And he knows how to activate, you know, he can, he can come to four rounds, you know, this year in particular, and still have arguably the best program uh, in the championship collectively with the other drivers that he has and the ability to scale his business out, even when he can't physically be present is, is something that I think he's really mastered. And Tanner is another great example. I mean, Tanner, I think is an example of a really incredible driver um, that took a different approach. You know, he drove for a team, but he built himself up yeah. as a personality, as a very skilled driver personality, got the top gear deal. And so he kind of took a little bit of a different approach. And if you look at the really successful drivers in the series, they don't all do the same things, but they find their, their niche and they figure out what they're good at and what is going to resonate with people about who they are and what they do. And then, like I mentioned for us in our early years, they leaned into that and they really went out and, and developed a strong program. Totally. What is coming up now for season 21 and beyond? Um, I know you guys have put out your schedule. It's, it's a, it's a pretty, pretty consistent to this year's schedule, if my, if I'm not mistaken, but are, are there any things that we can expect that are new and, and where ultimately do you see the next 20 years for formula drift headed? You know, this year's a really important year because we have a number of venue contracts that are coming up and, you know, we'll have to make some decisions about whether or not we stay or if we try to go to different markets. Um, and those decisions have to be made, you know, sometime, you know, in the you know first or second quarter, most likely. So there's going to be a lot of um, impetus on understanding, you know, what each of these venues offers to us and how it is able to play a role in, in the series as a whole. I think one of the things that I struggle with um, in terms of how to think about what we do for the future is that there are a number of great venues um, in the United States and in North America that certainly could hold a drifting event, but they might not be the perfect fit for us for a number of different reasons. Um, and a lot of the venues that do work for us, um, if they are not owned by the state or if they are not you know, run very, very well, you will see them struggling financially. And we've seen a lot of these smaller course mm -hmm. tracks go out of business over the past couple of years. And it's that's deeply concerning for us because we obviously can't be the only event that is successful at their venue and then they're not able to sustain the rest of the way around. I mean, I can give you one really good example of a venue that has pivoted away from something that they were doing into something different now, and it's related directly to drifting. And, you know, that is um, Englishtown Raceway. So Englishtown, you know, premier drag racing circuit for a long time, kind of recognized that things were not going as, as well as they thought in terms of the drag racing business. And they came to us and said, what if we converted our facility into like a drifting specific facility? Would that be something wow. that you guys would support in terms of a long-term contract? And so now they basically took their original footprint. They paved a bunch of sections in the, in the center section there, made it re this really cool kind of drift auditorium. 
And now they're hosting regular events there, not just for drifting, but for other things as well, and have been able to kind of pivot into this, this new era. I don't know if every venue has the ability to do that or can do that, but I do. I am worried about a lot of the smaller market venues that have been around for a long time that are well-suited for events like ours, um, you know, struggling financially because of you know, the real estate prices there are much more valuable for me to put some condos in a racetrack. And, you know, you kind of hear this refrain uh, quite often, but there will definitely have to be some venue discussions uh, for us, you know, very, very shortly here, some of which we're already attending to. And then I think the question for the series as a whole, because we, we kind of run a little bit of a democratic ship around here, is I think that, that we probably need to have as part of our plan some scale you know, we've been at eight events for a long time. I think we could easily, under the given resources that we have now, go to nine or 10. Um, but, you know, the athletes have to be ready to do that as well. There either has to be a financial incentive or there has to be some other reason for them to participate because we don't want to have a series that doesn't bring around all the top athletes to every single event. That's a very strong lesson that I learned in the import drag racing days when there was a, a, a lot of... Um, you know, mix mixing of athletes from different series. And so if you're a fan and you wanted to see Steph Papadakis, for example, but he was at another race weekend, you would not get yeah. Steph at that particular race weekend. Yeah. So that element is a really important part for me. Um, and I think, you know, within the next five years, you know, will we expand? I, I think we probably will, but I think more so we will probably see that some of the venues that have been long-term partners of ours will either continue to be long-term partners or will pivot to new markets. And in, in terms of, you know, the, the actual on-track product, do you see anything evolving, any changes in formats or, or, or anything that might, uh, you know, take, take formula drift in a different direction? I mean, that is an area where, you know, we, we change a lot every single year because I think we take a lot of input from fans in particular. And post-COVID has been such a um, has been a a flourishing of input from fans because a lot of these have been new fans that have been been introduced to the sport for the first time. And so we have to try to figure out how do you come to an event, understand what's going on in thirty seconds. Mm. And that, that means that not just the format, but also the way that judging occurs and the, say, the data that we are acquiring from the drivers and teams um, become part of the, the formula now. I don't, you know, there's a, there's kind of a, you know, a little bit of a segment of the population that thinks that, okay, there's enough technology and AI and in, you know, um, algorithmic kind of like hard, hard devices that could basically do automated judging. And, you know, there's a part of me that is sympathetic to that, but at the same time, what has made the sport uh, really appealing is that everybody gets to be a judge hmm. and you get to talk about, you know, the things that you found a benefit in driver A versus driver B. And so I think we will bring more data to board, um, but we will try to simplify our format and the nuances so that, you know, whether it's mom and dad that are coming to the event or they're bringing their new kids, which we saw a lot this year, you know, people that were fans 20 years ago are now bringing their kids to the events, Yeah, um, that they will be able to understand what's going on. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, best of luck, uh, Ryan, for 2024. We look forward to hopefully another 
nail biting season um, next year. That's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Take it easy. Well, thank you, Ryan. You know, great to have you on and, uh, you know, keep 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 pushing. I mean, it's amazing to see how far you guys have come. And I remember the days, on the old PRI days, you know, Orlando, when we brought you and Jim uh, for the, you know, one of the first demos. And I was familiar, you know, familiar with, uh, from, the, for, from drifting from my uh, trips to Japan, you know, all these years prior. And uh, I knew how popular it was over there. So, uh, I mean, you have done a brilliant job in, in creating this new uh, phenomena. And so keep pushing, man. It's, it's great, great to, to see you. So thank you very much. Registering on EPAR Trade is easy. To start, click on the Join for Free button on the homepage. First, search your company to see if it's already in our database. If you see your company on the list, click on it to select it. Then, choose Claim Company if you are one of the decision makers, an owner, marketing person, or main company contact or choose Join Company if you are an employee, and press Continue. If you couldn't find your company in our database, select Register a New Company. On the following page, fill out your name, email, phone number, job title, and choose a secure password. If you chose Register a New Company, you'll need to choose your business type. Select Supplier if you're looking to display products or services and connect with buyers. Choose Racing Business if you're looking to source new parts and connect with suppliers. Choose Race Team if you own or are a member of a professional race team. Then, enter your company name. Please provide a website, Facebook page, or LinkedIn if you have one, and choose to either claim or join the company. You can view and agree to our terms of use here. If you'd like to receive our weekly newsletter, choose Accept. Finally, click Register Now and your registration will be submitted for approval. An email will be sent to your inbox. Please confirm your email address and you will be approved shortly. Welcome to ePartrade.